welcome to this Unorthodoxy podcast. My name is Duncan, and the focus of this episode is on skepticism. It's a good subject, I think. And obviously, I want to deal with how skepticism relates to theology and faith, because that's what this podcast is for, at least mostly. And I think a good place to start is with this fantastic parody of the problem of skepticism that comes from W.E. Bowman's book, The Ascent of Rum Doodle. Bowman has this character named Wish, who is a scientist, very significant, of course. And this character is telling the story at one point in in the book uh, to another character named Binder. And in that story, Wish tells Binder that he doesn't believe in fiancés. <laughs> so, yeah, that's right, fiancés. This character was convinced by his parents at one point that there was a Santa Claus, and when Santa Claus turned out to be a total fiction, he started being completely skeptical about pretty much anything his parents told him. So, when at the age of seven, his father told him about the facts of life, with particular reference to fiancés, he found it pretty much impossible to believe what was being told to him. It seemed to him, he said, that it was just unlikely that fiancés exist as it was that Father Christmas exists, or Santa Claus. There's, of course, much more to the story, and I just I just think it's, it's wonderful the way that it's put. Um, and it does mock skepticism, but I think it has a strong point, too. I start with it because I like the idea of taking skepticism seriously, but not too seriously. If Santa Claus doesn't exist, it doesn't necessarily follow that fiancés don't exist, obviously. And if Santa Claus doesn't exist, it also doesn't mean, at least not necessarily, that God doesn't exist either. At the very least, we, we'd have to acknowledge that we're dealing with two different categories. But that feeling, I don't know if it's just a feeling, but that experience or that thought process that we know as skepticism is still very real to us. Of course, if you are a thinking human being, and I assume if you're listening to this that you are, you're going to, in some form or another, be confronted with your own skepticism um, and with the skepticism of others. And so I think it's very important that skepticism remains a consequence of being thoughtful rather than just being an excuse for not being thoughtful. I mention this because I think it's a really important idea, so I'll say it again. I think skepticism should be a consequence of being thoughtful rather than being an excuse for not being thoughtful. Often, as I see it, when people around me are, are really dogmatically skeptical, which is in itself a kind of weird idea, um, I feel that it's the result of wanting to stop thinking rather than being the result of wanting to keep on thinking. And I think often skepticism becomes a kind of way to shut the door on different types of reasoning. And there are different types of reasoning. So I do think skepticism can be abused. Skepticism is obviously a major issue for a lot of us. Uh, when I was an adolescent, I moved into a phase of atheism, at least partly because of this uh, skepticism. If you want to be rational, and seriously, who doesn't want to be rational. If you want to be rational, I thought back then, you really can't have blind faith. Blind faith is is silly. You need proof and logic, obviously. And I hadn't had a significant enough mystical experience at the time to have possessed any proof. And I don't think mystical experiences themselves are proof. I think you still need faith for them. But 
in my adolescent years, I just kind of defaulted to skepticism. It just seemed like the natural thing to do. But then, thankfully, I grew up and I realized that it's not that simple. It's not that I was totally wrong. Uh, of course, proofs and logic and reasonability and rationality, these things really matter very much. But these things are always extensions of faith rather than being the opposite of faith. So let me put this more strongly. Faith and reason are not opposites. All reason depends on faith. All reason depends on trust that cannot be proved or reasoned about. Uh, to get a more concrete sense of this, let's, let's look at how faith plays out in science. Well, I like to remember this simple thing that I learned from a nuclear physicist a while back. He pointed out that science itself, which is pretty much something that is reliant on skepticism because it's about testing assumptions and processes and outcomes and hypotheses, science itself cannot function without faith. This is something even Einstein noticed. Because we have to believe, for instance, that there is an ordered world that exists outside of our minds. We cannot prove this, we just have to trust it. We also have to believe, trust that is, that our minds have the ability to know this trusted in order. Again, we cannot prove it. So already we're doing, before we've done anything in, in science, we still, we have two faith conditions, I guess, that we have to rest into. There is an ordered world outside our minds, and we have the ability to know this order. And then there is, in fact, a third faith category. Uh, we have to trust, at least to some degree, the conclusions of other scientists and other thinkers. We have to trust the knowledge base that we have been handed by our education systems and by uh, other thinkers. So trust is a transcendent act. It's not something that you can prove. You can't prove that all, this body of knowledge is all trustworthy. I mean, obviously, we test bits and pieces in it, but we're using language that we trust. We, we're using thought processes that we trust. So trust is always part of our engagement with anything, even reason. Trust is really about how we set the whole thing up. And if you want to look into that uh, question of how we set things up, my previous episode on Chekhov's gun may be quite helpful to you. So faith isn't just this weird woo-woo thing that gets us to believe in fairies and Santa and the idea of an ethical politician. Trust is the grassroots foundation of everything. I trust the chair I'm sitting on right now, for instance. There is proof right now that it's working because I haven't fallen down, but this proof only goes as far as the present moment. <laughs> um, after this, who knows, maybe the chair will break. And what trust is, really, what faith is, is a kind of allegiance. It's what I will be allied to, what I choose to align myself with. I know that the word allegiance, of course, comes with a, a lot of nationalistic baggage, but it still points to exactly what I'm talking about. To explain this link between faith and allegiance, a story can be helpful, and it happens to have a, a bit of a nationalistic overtone, but my focus is on the image, not on the specific uh, situation. What this image is telling us, it's an image that comes from Walter Lippmann's famous book, Public Opinion, which was published back in 1922. 
right near the start of the book in a chapter with the wonderful title, The World Outside and the Picture in Our Heads. Lipman tells us something. By the way, isn't that such a great title? It's the perfect frame through which we can understand this issue of skepticism. The world outside and the picture in our heads. Anyway, so here's what Lipman writes. He says, There is an island in the ocean where in 1914 a few Englishmen, Frenchmen and Germans lived. No cable reaches that island and the British mail steamer comes but once in 60 days. In September, it had not yet come, and the islanders were still talking about the latest newspaper which told about the approaching trial of Madame Callot for the shooting of Gaston Calmet. It was, therefore, with more than usual eagerness that the whole colony assembled at the quay on the day in mid-September to hear from the captain what the verdict had been. So they were expecting this one verdict. And they learned that for over six weeks now, those of them who were English and those of them who were French had been fighting in behalf of the sanctity of treaties against those of them who were Germans. For six strange weeks, they had acted as if they were friends, when in fact they were enemies. Isn't that such a great illustration, such a good story? And it's so pertinent. And what I love about it is that it's actually a pretty ambiguous story. On the one hand, maybe the most obvious interpretation of it is that the friendships that existed between the English, French and Germans on this island were unveiled as having been fictions. When the news came in, the English, the French and the Germans must have thought, those people aren't really my friends after all. On the other hand, though, this news could have been taken to reveal that the war itself was the fiction, because the friendships, the partnerships, the conversations and interactions between all these different nations, the actual experiences of these people were the real thing, and the allegiances of all these people was to each other first, and to their respective nations second. And you can ponder this uh, for hours, but the idea that I want to highlight here is simply this. Faith is always primarily an issue of allegiance. It's about loyalty, commitment, devotion. Faith is really about what and who you love. And how we read the world, like how we read that story um, that Walter Lippmann tells us, is going to depend hugely on our allegiances. It's true that somewhere along the line, Western culture got this very weird idea that faith and reason are opposites. But that idea comes from a misunderstanding of the nature of allegiance. I can be allied to two things at the same time without there being any conflict between them. I'm on the side of ice cream and sandwiches, but I don't see the conflict until I make the stupid assumption that ice cream and sandwiches are in competition with each other. The world we live in is often forcing us into a false choice. Republican or Democrat, left or right, conservative or liberal, as if these are the only options available, as if these things are automatically and in reality in conflict. They may be in conflict with reality itself, but that's a different thing. These are false choices. Well, My take is that faith and reason aren't in conflict at all. I get to love science and philosophy and theology and the Marvel Cinematic Universe without ever once feeling like I'm living in a world of contradictions. 
So I am allied, for instance, to the idea that modern medicine is a wonderful thing and that the various treatments of modern medicine that they it's I mean, that's I'm creating a huge broad brushstrokes here, but that these treatments are way, way better than what the people had back in the day of Jesus. In fact, I kind of just imagine that way back in those days, Jesus got bronchitis and I bet he was wishing that modern medicine had been invented already. And along with my appreciation of modern medicine, I am also allied to a great deal of contemporary literature. I love good stories, and I'm sure a lot of you do too, but I really don't see any conflict. And the reason I don't see conflict is that my allegiance is primarily to reality itself, which contains these other dimensions of reality. I know that I will never know reality as a whole, or apart from my own subjective opinions, but I believe in reality, for realsies. <laughs> and this is not just some reality outside of me, but something that I am part of. And in my experience, modern medicine and contemporary lit literature are part of this big, same big reality alongside me. And it's a reality that's not just alongside me, it's one that is in some sense within me. As much as my allegiance is to reality, it is my ally too. It's somehow, in some way, on my side, even when it's a tough nut to crack or a tough customer to try and please. You'd agree with me, I'm sure, I hope, that I don't have to love modern medicine at the expense of my love for literature. I'd be healthy, sure, but I'd have a very uninspired life too and possibly no reason for living. Why can't I have both medicine and good stuff to read? Well, the answer is simple. I really can. I get to have my cake and eat it, too. I get to have faith and reason. In fact, any conflict between faith and reason is, in my view, a massive category error. It's, it's like saying that Jane Austen's book Emma is botched sociology, or that James Schooley's book Introduction to Botany is the worst zombie movie ever. <laughs> They're not in the same territory. The trouble is, of course, that the modern era has produced something known as fundamentalism, which is something I've spoken out about on this podcast before, and I will no doubt bring the topic up again, because it is clearly part of our cultural climate. Fundamentalism can be defined, among other things, as a catastrophic failure of the imagination. And what this means is that obvious things are often completely overlooked. Here's an example. The Genesis account of creation was written in a near-Middle Eastern, pre-modern context by at least one, but more likely a few different authors. Its point was not to record the specific scientific details of a specific set of events. It was written by someone or some ones who may or may not have had a divine revelation, but who we can absolutely certainly say this, but who definitely did not have a clue about modern astronomy or carbon dating. These people were brilliant literature writers and poets, but terrible Darwinians. Not because there was a conflict with Darwinism, but because Darwinism hadn't been invented yet. But it takes imagination to conceive of how this text was written in a totally different world from ours, with with totally different concerns. But fundamentalism, which is a modern invention, not an ancient one, 
refuses to grasp this most obvious of facts. For many, the problem here is that faith is used at the expense of reason, but if we look closer, we realize something totally different. It is not only reason that is failing these fundamentalists, but faith itself, because actual fidelity, actual allegiance to the text, would take seriously the context and the world in which it was written. This is very obvious stuff. And actual allegiance to the text would arrive, as many scholars have, both in the pre-modern world and in the contemporary world, at this startling realization, which is the idea that the text of Genesis is talking about truths and beliefs that have absolutely nothing to do with whether you think Homo sapiens evolved 200,000 years ago or 6,000 years ago or last Tuesday. The Genesis account is asking questions and answering questions, but not those questions. So if you come to the text with all these kind of like modern scientific inquiry kind of questions, you're committing hermeneutical violence. It's basically forcing something to say what it is not trying to say. So that's the second thing I actually wanted to point out. Not only is the question of allegiance very important, vitally important, what's also important is the question of what kind of truth you're looking for and where you're going to find it. If you want to know how to get off a desert island, for instance, you don't want a Bible. You want a book on practical shipbuilding or on how to signal distant planes and ships using only sand and palm trees. The Bible might be nice if you want something rich and spiritually challenging and filled with complex and interesting history and narratives and legends and parables. And if you have no intention of getting off that damned island, the Bible is a good idea. If you want to step into another world where human experiences were framed by a different context and a wonderful wisdom tradition and profound as well as occasionally misguided spiritual insights, then the Bible is going to be a pretty good bet. All of this, that is discerning what kind of truth we're supposed to be looking for, takes imagination. It takes imagination to recognize that it's stupid to read the Bible as if it's a scientific textbook just as it is stupid to expect that it should be as good as any scientific textbook at explaining science. Um, there are, of course, bad scientific textbooks, but that's another issue. Our expectations are going to shape the reality that we perceive. What we hope for is going to affect what we are ready and willing to accept. The picture in our heads is going to deeply affect how we understand and interpret the world. But what has this got to do with skepticism? Of course, uh, I'm hoping that it's already clear that this has a lot to do with skepticism because skepticism is also a matter of allegiance. And skepticism is unified with faith. It is, it's their buddies when both are allied to the same thing. If skepticism is as committed to knowing reality and as committed to participating in reality as faith is, there will be no conflict. And this, just in case you didn't notice, it means something rather profound. Skepticism itself is always rooted in a kind of faith. Faith can have faith in a kind of faith. That is, we can be allied to one kind of allegiance, and skepticism can also be allied 
to that allegiance, that kind of faith. Any kind of skepticism is going to be dependent on faith, what we are allied to. So to, to be doubtful of anything, you have to be certain of something. You have to be certain, for instance, that you're thinking correctly when you're in the process of doubting. And well, maybe you are, but maybe you aren't. I'm very grateful that I'm quite naturally skeptical. Um, as Frederick Beekner says, doubt is the ants in the pants of faith. <laughs> Isn't that great? Doubt keeps faith vital and alive. But skepticism can, as I said, bring us to a very dangerous place too, with thinking more and further about things is being prevented. The door is being shut on further thinking. So the advice I'd give to skeptics out there, like me, is the advice that Chesterton gives. To the overly confident asserter of doubts, I would say, keep doubting. Keep on doubting as long and as much as you want, so that maybe you doubt yourself into realizing that you can even doubt your doubts. And when you do that, you may discover the faith, the allegiance that guides all of your doubt and all of your faith. To be really effective in your skepticism, and I think this is a great thing, being effective in skepticism, at least some of the time you have to be skeptical of your skepticism. In fact, without the skepticism of skepticism itself, skepticism becomes cynicism. And cynicism cuts off even the possibility of a truth outside of our current frame of reference. But, of course, I know that this doesn't solve everything. Back when I was fairly young, I remember someone saying to me that whatever is true, whatever is truly true, that is, not just contextually true or, or seemingly or superficially true, whatever is true can handle our questions. Truth can handle our questions. So I asked a bunch of questions and then some more, and then I kept on asking questions and now I can't stop. And I've discovered that sometimes what I perceived to be a disagreement was often just a difference of perspective, and that both perspectives could be accommodated. And also I've discovered that the truth can really handle my questions. In the process of questioning, some stuff did crumble. But the thing that crumbled was not my faith, and it certainly wasn't the truth. Uh, what crumbled was the thing that seemed like the truth but wasn't the truth. And if anything, my faith was the constant thing, always resilient to the various fluxes of life, because my allegiance was always to something, specifically someone, that transcended the flux. So there you have it. The trouble with a God you can conceive of is that that God will always be rationalizable and reducible to your own limited picture of the world outside your head. And I think if skepticism leads to the death of this God, that's tremendous, <laughs> because it, you may end up believing in a real God instead of just a fabrication, a kind of ersatz God. And the same goes for the kind of Christianity, by the way, that resists reason and science and thinking in general. Um, that's going to be a kind of Christianity that needs to die. In any case, the early Christians saw Christianity as opening the door to the real, not as limiting our access to it. So maybe we should follow their lead. 
I know, by the way, that this certainly does not does not cover the subject in total, but I, I hope some of these insights will help you as you grapple with your own questions, your own questioning and doubting and believing, and the fact that these things are messy. Uh, but ultimately, I think that if we have an allegiance to something bigger than just our commitment to tearing everything to shreds, we may find our, our way back home. So my hope and prayer for you is that you will be skeptical, that you will be okay with questioning and doubting and, and challenging things. But I also hope that you do not uh, just give in to cynicism, which just shuts the door on different perspectives that may in the end be quite helpful to you. Um, I hope that you will be hopeful, but not in a, an overly sentimental or unrealistic way. 